0: The 15th chapter of John begins with these words. Our Lord Jesus is speaking I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. For those people who heard him in the time of his life, and for those who pay attention to his words today, Jesus Christ was and is a marvelous teacher for those who love God and seek the things of God. One reason that he is a marvelous teacher has simply to do with his identity. We understand that he was God dwelling momentarily in the flesh. This was his claim. Jesus claimed to be before Abraham, He was a man who said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He was a man who claimed that those who would continue in his word would discover that truth that would set them eternally free. There are questions that trouble us as we live the days of our lives. Some of those questions are relatively trivial. Some of those are of lasting and overarching importance. Who are we? Why are we here? And arguably one of the most important questions of life is where are we going when our hearts stop beating? Through the centuries, man has invented answers to those questions and our culture is absolutely rife with them. And yet there's only one person who is able to answer those questions and that is God. If there is no God, then the questions are meaningless. We waste time pursuing their answers. But if there is a God... And those questions must find their answer in him. Jesus claimed to be God dwelling among us. He claimed that his word is eternally true. No person can claim to be wise who has not given carefully attention to the claims, to the life, to the person of Jesus Christ, who has not considered the things that people who knew Jesus best said about him we have convincing reason to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In the records of his life, and the recollections of those who knew him, we find no reason to question that. He was a marvelous teacher because he is the Son of God. But more than that, he was a marvelous teacher because he was a keen observer of life and people And filled his teachings not with scholarly, philosophical observations and claims that would be true in themselves but could not be understood by the wisest of men. But rather, he spoke to those who were seeking God in terms of things that were familiar to them. When Jesus used the familiar to teach the unfamiliar, when he used the common, to refer to the uncommon, we say that he was teaching in parables. We read his parables and we can easily imagine experiences that Jesus had in life. We can imagine him sitting in the home of the family house in Nazareth, talking with his mother and watching her make bread, putting together the ingredients, kneading it all into a ball, putting it into a jar in the windowsill and covering it with a cloth, only to come back hours later and find out that the sunlight and the yeast have combined to expand that ball of dough remarkably. And there was a time when Jesus said that is exactly how the kingdom of God works in the minds and the hearts of those who love God. There must have been a time when he sat along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and watched fishermen at the end of their shift sorting their catch. There were those fish in their nets that they were after, prized fish. They carefully removed from the net and put into baskets to clean and take to the marketplace, but in their nets were others that meant less than nothing to the fishermen. They were the suckers perhaps and the carp and the dogfish that fishermen today generally shun. And these fish were either thrown up further on the beach to flop in the sand and to die, or perhaps thrown back into the water. And Jesus said the judgment will be like that. That in the judgment there will be people for reasons and standards of his own are acceptable and beloved by God, known and important to him, who will be welcomed by him into eternity. But there will be other men and women and young people who mean less than nothing to God, who will be simply set aside and have no place in his eternal grace and kingdom. He heard shepherds calling their own and saw them going out before their flocks to pasture. He studied men planting their crops and then reaping their crops and struggling against weeds. Unmarried, he sensed the joy of wedding ceremonies. Having no children of his own, he knew something of a father's love. And he wove all of these familiar experiences of life into his teachings about the provisions and the requirements. Or the kingdom of God. And one of these similes, one of these allegories, one of these parables is open before us in the 15th chapter of John where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The setting and space for these words of Jesus is that upper room somewhere in Jerusalem a space that was made available to Jesus for his observation of what would be the last legitimate Passover in all of sacred history. It was a place for at least 10 days, his at first troubled and then wandering disciples gathered after his crucifixion and his resurrection. And it was the place where Jesus said to his friends, I am the vine and you are the branches. An important principle of biblical study as we try to interpret and apply the words that we find there is the identity of the persons to whom words originally were written or spoken. This becomes crucial at certain times. The Sermon on the Mount, for example, of Jesus was not spoken to people in mass, but was directed directly to his disciples. And that's true of these words also. Jesus did not say, I am the vine, you are the branches to all of mankind. But rather, he spoke these words to those who had placed their faith in him. I'd like to consider these words with you, and I'd like to begin by telling you who did not know and reminding you who are aware that in these words of Jesus, there is a subtle but a very important assumption of deity on Jesus' part. In the Gospel of John, we find a number of teachings of Jesus that begin with the words, I am. In the sixth chapter, he said, I am the bread of life. In the eighth, I am the light of the world. In the tenth, I am the good shepherd. In the eleventh, I am the resurrection and the life. In the fourteenth, I am the way and the truth and the life. And here in the fifteenth, Jesus said, I am the vine. These words have little significance to us, but they would have great significance to Jews who heard him speak those words who were also conversant with their own scriptures. Their root is found in the third chapter of Exodus at the beginning of the Old Testament where we read of that dramatic encounter between God and Moses at a burning bush somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula. There God appeared to Moses And he ordered him to go back to Egypt to become the leader of God's captive people. And Moses asked God the very reasonable question, when I go to Sam, whom shall I say sent me? In other words, he said, God, what is your name? And God answered by saying, I am who I am. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who appeared to Moses, the God of the Hebrews, identified himself simply as I am. We come into the New Testament of the Gospel of John, and we find Jesus using these same words to speak of himself. The use of these words, the emphasis upon these words is even clearer in the Greek New Testament than in our English editions of it, because they are, they are separate words. Many Greek, there's, a, there's a word that means I am in Greek all by itself, is the word me. But in the Greek language, where all of these are translated, it's ego aimi, two separate words, stressing the importance of what Jesus is saying about himself. Jesus is claiming to be the God who met Moses at the burning bush. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Vineyards were a common sight in that land that we call holy in the first century. Many of the terraced hills were covered by them. Their produce was made into grape juice and raisins, and wine and when their fruit ripened in September entire villages would empty as men and women and their children were hired to help harvest and process the grapes. In the 21st chapter of Matthew Jesus told a parable about a man who created a vineyard and it says something to us about the enormous economic value of a well planned, well tended vineyard. There, Jesus described a man who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to vine dressers, and then went away. Notice that in this parable of Jesus, we have an investment being made. The act of a man who risked his own capital to buy a piece of land, cleared that property, laid the foundation for a potentially successful enterprise, and then leased it to others and went on with his life, expecting a return on his investment. As a Bible study matter, we wonder whether this field in Jesus' imagination, with its great potential value, was the treasure that was discovered by another man in another of his parables. In the church and the wider community today, there are many, many people who claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ, who say things at odds with what Jesus said. These people take strong moral positions regarding the legitimacy of abortion and a homosexual lifestyle. And they speak to us in haughty terms of the dangers incipient in capitalism. I want to call your attention to that parable that Jesus used in Matthew 21, because it is a parable about a capitalist who risks his own capital, invests it in property and construction, eventually creates jobs in a community, and reasonably expects a return on his investment. There are people in the church today, some of them wearing the black robes of ordination, who would tell us that capitalism is a horrible evil and they claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ. The capitalist, in this case, in Jesus' parable, the man who bought the land and cleared the land and did all of those things and then expected a fair return, represents God himself. It is a crime that within the scope of Christendom, there are people who claim to serve Christ, claim to know Christ, claim to believe in and follow Christ, whose fundamental philosophies of life are 180 degrees from those of the Lord himself. And in the interests of intellectual honesty, we wish that they would choose some other name by which to identify themselves and some other title by which they wish to be known the hedge protecting the vines, the tower built so that the vine dressers could watch for predators, the effort required, the lease arrangement made, all suggest to us the great value of vineyards in the first century. And it becomes the basis of the Lord's description and therefore the value of our relationship with him when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches we notice the deliberateness of vineyards. Jesus is not speaking of wild grapes that had no more value then than they do to us. He refers to something done with purpose and care, the selection of an appropriate place, the choice and the transplantation of vines, the pruning of branches to ensure greater fruitfulness, the constant effort to protect the vineyard from animals that would pillage the vines and men who would steal their produce if they could, the knowledge and experience of the vine dresser, his drive and ambition, the vigilance and labor required, the attention applied, the energy expanded, all remind us that a successful vineyard was no accident. And just as deliberate and just as prized is this marvelous relationship that we who are Christians have with Jesus Christ. These words of Jesus remind us of the nature of our call and the source of our relationship with Christ. It is ludicrous to imagine a wine dresser standing atop his watchtower, cupping his hands to his mind, Mouth and calling out to all who will hear, begging branches within the scope of his voice to come to fasten themselves to his vine. Look as long as you will, and you'll never see stray branches hopping and skipping and slithering across the landscape, looking for a vine to affix themselves to. Branches do not choose a vine. Vines produce branches. When you and I were young Christians, it seemed to us that we had made those decisions and taken those actions that made us one with Jesus Christ. But for many of us, as we matured in our faith and became more thoughtful about our relationship with Christ, questions about our initial interpretation of our experience with him began to arise in our minds. We remember how strangely warmed our hearts were when we first heard the gospel, before we had given it a moment's thought, and sensing that something wonderful was happening deep within us as if we were being acted on by something external to us. Later, many of us recall discovering on the pages of Scripture that repentance which is our original sense of revulsion at the sin that lies within us, and our turning away from it with repentance and sorrow is an attitude and response, the Bible says, is granted by God. And we learn that the faith that saves us is the work and the gift of God. In other words, the Bible teaches us that the core ingredients of Christian conversion, faith and repentance, are not our doing, but they are the work of God. And more and more we understand and rejoice in our understanding that the life that we have in Jesus Christ is not the result of our searching for him, but the product of his working within us. Branches do not seek vines, that then become the source of their life and their vitality, but vines produce branches. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. From this parable, we also learn something about the permanence of our relationship with Christ. There's a question that has troubled all of us at Christians at some point in our our growth, in our faith, and our knowledge. There was a time when we became aware of the enormity of the gifts that God has bestowed upon us in the name of Jesus Christ. We have received mercy. We have received life. We have been adopted as the children of God. These things are wonderful. But simultaneously with our recognizing the enormity of these gifts is our recognition of our utter unworthiness of one of them, much less All of them. And we've had to wonder can I keep this? Can I hang on to this? And we've had moments of fear that we might slip away from the grace and the hand of God, slip back into that darkness from which the gospel once drew us and be lost again. If a pollster were to stand at the door of a large church on Sunday morning and ask people as they left two questions. Are you a Christian? And where are you going when you die? I suspect that in almost every case, those who answered the first question, yes, I am, would say, well, I hope then I'm able to continue to believe, or I hope that I'm able to do sufficient good that when I die, God will find my soul eternally acceptable to himself. We tend to accept the common view of judgment that places the good in us in one side of the balances and the evil in the other, with the result that if the balances tilt in the direction of the good we're in, but if the dial shifts toward the easy side, the evil side, then we're lost. In the Old Testament, a man who numbered himself among the redeemed of God said, It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. In the New Testament, Paul speaks to the redeemed, and he says of God, And you he made alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And this same apostle said, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And with this picture in mind, an illustration of a doctrinal truth occurred to me long ago. Uh, Some of you may have heard it, but the illustration is a story about a man who was hiking through strange country. He had a destination. He was rather desperate to get where he was supposed to be. And as he hiked, he came upon this chasm in the earth, that was far too wide for him to leap over, and it stretched out of sight to the horizon on the left and the horizon on the right. Desperate to get across the chasm, he looked this way and he looked that way, and he saw what looked like a rope turned out to be a vine, somehow growing across the chasm. Having no other choice, he pulled on it to test its strength, and it seemed solid, and he began to hand over hand... The vine across the chasm. He got out near the middle of the chasm and he looked down, and it was about 200 feet. There was a stream flowing around broken and jagged rocks that would make any whitewater rafter nervous. And as he reached the middle of the chasm, he he felt his strength beginning to eave. the The vine sagged in the middle, so whichever way he went, it would be uphill, and he began to worry about being able to finish his journey. He tried to go one way. He tried to go the other way. And finally, all he could do was hang on, and his strength to do that was rapidly fading. And finally, having no other choice, he resigned himself to his fate, and he relaxed his grip. But to his amazement, he did not fall. He looked up at his hands, and he discovered that he was growing out of the vine. The vine that he thought he was holding on to was now actually holding him. Now, that's a ridiculously implausible story, but it makes an important point for us. Because often as Christians, we wonder whether we will be able to retain our grip on the vine that saves us and protects our souls from eternal destruction. And then we hear the words of Jesus, I am the vine You are the branches, and we understand that it is the vine that holds us and not we that hold the vine. In the 10th chapter of John, Jesus said of his own, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If you're a Christian this morning, you can sing with joy the hymns that were selected for worship today. Because every one of them speaks of the happy confidence that we have in the goodness and the grace of God, not our own goodness or ability, that when time is over, we will stand forever in the presence of God. This parable of the one that we are learning to call Lord reminds us of the divine source of the life that is in us as Christians, It reminds us that that life is maintained by God himself. These are good, undeserved things that God does for us. He calls us to himself in Christ and generates that life that allows us to hear and causes us to respond to the gospel. And he keeps us in a state of faith so that the marvelous gifts of his mercy and life will never be withdrawn from us. But there's more to the parable than these reminders of what God has done for us. The Old Testament prophet Micah asked the people of God, what does the Lord your God require of you? Too often we think of the gospel only in terms of what it promises to us. Too seldom do we ask ourselves the prophet's question. But it's fair to ask, if you belong to God by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, what does God expect of you? The 23rd Psalm says that God restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Paul writes that God has made us alive, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. The God who has done so much for us in Christ now expects us to be fruit bearers. But the next question becomes, what does Christ mean by fruit? Some of you are aware that in the wider evangelical church there is a great division with the most common answer to this question being that the fruit that God desires from us is the produce of our efforts to win others through Jesus Christ. The view is far more common than not that every Christian is to be a missionary, every Christian is to be an evangelist, Every Christian is called to engage in an aggressive, continuous effort to impress our faith in Jesus Christ upon those not yet committed to that faith. And when these efforts are successful, souls have been won, and they become the fruit that God expects of us. You have heard me say before, and you will hear me say again, that it is impossible to support this view of Christian obligation from the Scriptures. And the reason that you've heard it, and the reason that you've heard, we'll hear it again, is that it is so common in the wider church. One of the men who heard Jesus say these words I'm the vine, you are the branches, God wants you to bear fruit was Peter. Peter was not the first pope but he was certainly a leader among the apostles, and to him was given the privilege to be the first to preach the Christian gospel. This took place on the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. It's referred to in the second chapter of Acts. On that day, hundreds of converts were made. Later, the Holy Spirit would prompt Peter to write letters to some of these converts. They're near the end of the New Testament, and they are the books of First and Second Peter. And in 2 Peter, he addresses this matter of bearing fruit. Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Peter's letters, there are no calls to aggressive evangelism. In Peter's letter, there are many encouragements to godly living. By this time, Peter had had years to reflect upon Jesus' teachings. And if much of the church today is right, it is inexcusable that he would not have tied fruit to evangelism. Even more directly to the point are Paul's words in Galatians 5, where he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit in the life of each individual Christian. And he says that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self control. What does the Lord our God require of us? What is the fruit we're called to produce for His glory? He calls us and reasonably expects us to practice the disciplines of the Christian life and develop the virtues of Christian character. While he gifts and calls individuals to be and do a variety of things in the church and in the world, these things he requires of all who have embraced Christ by faith. Among the disciplines of the Christian life to which he calls us are these, faithfulness in corporate worship and private prayer, the study and contemplation of his word and guarding ourselves against the corrupting influence of the world and the darker side of our own nature to identify and faithfully gathered with those who assemble to sing the praises of god in jesus name to regularly seek his mercy and favor in secret prayer to develop the habit of reading and pondering the meaning of scripture and to rid our lives of those attitudes and acts that God hates. These together are part of our answer to the prophet's question, what does the Lord require of you? And then in the Bible, we find many individual references and a number of lists to those qualities of life and character that God summons us to seek and to honor. For example, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read of that love that Christ calls us to. That love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. It is not easily provoked. And in Philippians 4, Paul wrote whatever things are true Noble, just, pure, whatever things are lovely, are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything worthy of praise, meditate on these things. In one form or another, on the pages of his word, God sets before us those qualities of life and thought and urges us to make them our pattern and our goal for life. And remember, God does not intend this to be a smorgasbord. It is not multiple choice. Nowhere does God put this array before us and say to us, take what you like and leave the rest. Nowhere does God say, concentrate on two or three of these, and when you've mastered them, come back and pick another two or three to concentrate on. To every Christian at every stage of life, God says, these things are the fruit I have called and enabled you to bear for my name's sake. And every Christian is responsible for every one of these acts and attitudes and virtues that God sets before us in his word. They should become a kind of measuring device that we use to take stock of our own development, our own growth in Jesus Christ and our own usefulness to God. Among those of us who are committed Christians, in every one of our lives, there are branches that are bearing fruit. We examine ourselves and we discover that to a greater extent than before, we are practicing the disciplines of the Christian life and showing signs of Christian character. And in these discoveries, we find cause for praise. But it is also true that in every one of our lives, there are branches that are bearing sickly fruit, or none at all. And may our response to these discoveries be our ardent prayers for the grace, for the strength, and even for the desire to be done with such things as these. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. By these words, we're reminded of the divine source of our relationship with Christ and are convinced of its permanence. But by these words, we're also reminded that behind our redemption and security in Christ stands the purpose of God, and that purpose is that we might bear fruit for his pleasure and for his glory. Let's leave this place determined as never before to do those things and to be that kind of person that will allow God one day to say to each of us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. We have been made alive in Jesus. Let us now live for Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, too often we see ourselves as the end of the gospel line that our salvation, our peace, our happiness, our fulfillment in life are your goals for us. And we find it hard to look beyond ourselves and our needs as we come before you. We thank you, our God, that you have caused us to be born again, that you've called us to yourself and that you've assured us that the blessings that we know now will have no end, but remind us that there's more to the story than this. Place before us the question of Micah, what does the Lord your God require of us? May it be a question that we ask at the beginning and the end of every day. And may our answers become increasingly pleasing to you and sources of thanksgiving to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.